From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Burnout happens at work, but stress doesn't care. It doesn't care if it's home or work or anywhere else. Stress is stress. So if you're burned out at work, you've got to get to the underlying root causes of what's causing that stress in all aspects of your life and deal with that, not just the burnout issues. That's Dr. Jeff Comer talking about the role stress plays on our overall happiness and our well-being, both at the office and in our personal lives. We'll hear more from Dr. Comer in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. A strong financial foundation is critical for any healthcare organization. With Allscripts Revenue Cycle Management Services, you get a robust end-to-end revenue cycle solution that improves reimbursement processes and offers access to advanced analytics and reporting. With the right partner by your side, get on track toward a healthier financial future. Allscripts can help you reduce the cost of care while building a healthier community. Learn more at allscripts.com. It's all about you this fall. Accelerate your path to medical practice leadership. Be empowering, be influential, be exceptional, be a leader. Join us in San Diego, October 24th through the 27th at the Medical Practice Excellence Leaders Conference. Or join us for our digital experience, November 16th through the 18th. Visit mgma.com slash mpe21 and register today. Our guest today is Dr. Jeff Comer, CEO of Summit Behavioral Health. Dr. Comer's here today to talk about ways in beating burnout for more effective leadership. Dr. Comer, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Look forward to it. So give our listeners an idea of, of your background and, and really based on that background where your focus has been during these last 15, 16 months or so. Uh, you know, Daniel, I think like everybody, I've just been trying to survive and get through all of this craziness. I mean, we've had a brutal election. We've had COVID. We've had, you know, all the, the protests and demonstrations and, of course, the ongoing environmental issues. I mean, it just goes on and on. So it, it just like everybody, I've been trying to survive. I've been doing my job. I am a, a CEO still. Uh, and then I, uh, I do a lot of research psychology, I like to call it, and a lot of speaking on stress management and burnout. And just been trying to help people uh, uh, to cope with it and, and help myself along the way as well. So uh, just, just trying to survive. Yeah. And looking a little deeper into that background, is that where your, your study, your research has been, that self-exploration as well for you? Is that in looking at stress and how it impacts individuals? Give us an idea of that, where your sort of academic and professional background is. Absolutely. So I was, a, I, I got my doctorate later in life. I've been a CEO for many, many years. I came out with my master's and like everyone else started in the 
the bottom of the organization and worked my way up. I've been a hospital CEO, a large physician practice CEO, uh, ambulatory surgery CEO, um, kind of made the, the circles in healthcare. And I noticed in my career that, um, you know, I had all these MBA skills, but my undergrad degree was psychology. And I found that I was using the psychology more than all the quantitative MBA skills. And I just saw that so much of what I did was related to people and dealing with people issues. And, you know, the strategy was easy. The financial management was easy, but dealing with people was really the challenge and, and the complexity of the CEO role. And so I've always had this interest in psychology and decided that I really wanted to go back and pursue that. And as I got into my studies, I became just fascinated with psychoneuroimmunology, which is the study of stress management. And I dedicated all of my research to that. And, uh, now it's really fun for me because I can kind of blend both worlds. I can talk to executives and practice leaders and, as one of them, but I can also bring that research component to try to help them to uh, deal with their own stress, deal with organizational stress, uh, and how to just manage people more effectively. So it's been a, a long progression to get to where I am today, uh, but I absolutely love everything I do. I get to blend both worlds and uh, it's really been rewarding for me. Oh, that's great. Now, you said a word that might have people scrambling for their dictionaries or thesaurus, um, psychoneuroimmunology. Um, <laughs> that's a new one. So help us understand that. I, I get some of the pieces of those words if you go to their etymology, but um, give us an idea of what that is. It just is kind of fun to say. You know, I've practiced that word many times, so it just rolls out. But, um, it, it, it's really fun when I tell people psychoneuroimmunology, they say, well, you know, I get the psycho, I get the neurology, I see how those two blend, but what the heck does immunology right. have to do with it? And it really is a central core component of stress management because stress management involves all of these different hormonal pathways, neurotransmitter changes, but it also involves the immune system. So you have, for example, molecules in your body called cytokines. These are pro and anti-inflammatory molecules. So if you get a laceration, you cut yourself, you have inflammation. That's cytokines rushing there, bringing the immune system in, the white blood cells, the lymphocytes, macrophages, everything to help heal it. Well, the problem is when you have chronic stress, these cytokines are in your body and they're creating a lot of damage. And so the blending of psychoneuro and immunology really helps to explain stress better. It also explains the mind-body connection very well. We, we can't hardly go anywhere without hearing about mindfulness and meditation. Right. And it's traditionally been kind of a more of a, a metaphysical kind of spiritual concept. But there, Daniel, is now hard science showing the efficacy of mindfulness-based practices. And it's because it ties your neurotransmitters, your hormones, with the immune system together. So people always thought that your neurotransmitters were stuck in your brain. That's actually not true. They interact throughout your body. In fact, the immune system actually has receptors for neurotransmitters. So you think of serotonin, for example. A lot of people equate serotonin with depression and well-being. The majority of your serotonin is actually in your gut and it's transported throughout your body via the immune system. So it's kind of a, a, a real quick answer to your question that the three sciences really blend together to explain stress management very, very well. And that's where I became so interested in that field. That's really fascinating. So I will go back to what you said where it's stored in the gut. So yes. how, how related is diet then to it? Or is that just 
it just happens to be in the gut area. Um, uh, very, very related to it. Uh, many foods can help you to increase uh, neurotransmitter production. Uh, they can keep your neurotransmitters in the synaptic gaps where they operate more efficiently. Also, foods can lead to better hormonal balance. They can lead to better immuno uh, functioning, your immune system, you know, reacting more appropriately, not going to level 10, but maybe staying at level two when it shouldn't be that high. So the diet plays a huge component. It also just makes you feel better. I mean, when you eat well, you have a, a better feeling uh, than when you eat a, a lot of really bad junk food. Now, of course, we all want to do that at times, but the key is just balance like everything else in life. Uh, but the diet and nutrition play a huge, huge uh, component to your mental well-being and psychological health. Absolutely. And the research now is really supporting that. We've known it for years, but now we have hard science showing the exact whys behind it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to turn back to the mindfulness one more time, because in yeah. certain yoga classes that I've attended where the teacher will lead through some pretty deep, intensive breath work, you know, yes. the pranayama breath work, they'll talk about what we're getting at is the parasympathetic nervous system. Tell us about that. What is it when you really do get into some really deep breathing? What is that doing to the body? How is it helping you deal with stress? Um, so then you can combat burnout in your own life. Absolutely. As, as Daniel, that's kind of the heart of all of this, really. So you mentioned the sympathetic nervous system. That's what is starting this whole process. So you have a stressor, whether that's an emergent, you know, life-threatening, it's going to kill you stressor, or it's more of a symbolic stressor. Um, you're nervous about giving a speech, you know, giving a, a public speaking engagement, that's not going to kill you unless you have a really tough audience. It's, right. it's not going to kill you, but it creates the same amount of stress as if you had an emergent stressor. So our brains are still operating hundreds of thousands of years ago, although society technology, everything is, you know, much more advanced and complicated. Our brain is still operating back on the plains of Africa. And, and, and I mean that actually very literally. So when you have a stressor, your brain just automatically goes into the stress response system, whether it's a symbolic stressor or a true emergent stressor. So what happens is your amygdala becomes involved. That's the emotional response center in your brain. It basically, while it's getting involved, your prefrontal cortex, which is kind of the frontal portion of your brain, the logical reasoning section, it is actually inhibited. It's slowed down so that your emotional center takes over. Now you have all of these different processes that are engaged. Your hormones go crazy. Your neurotransmitters go crazy. Your body, your heart rate is up. Your digestion stops. That's why you get the butterflies in your stomach. Your body's now sending fatty acids and sugars to your muscles to prime you for, for this fight or flight response that we hear about. And so what happens now to calm that system down, you have to engage the parasympathetic nervous system. And that is in large part controlled by the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the, one of the 12 cranial nerves. It's the longest one. It runs from your medulla oblongata, which is kind of a, a motion center, uh, movement center of your brain, down to the ilium outside of your colon. That is a big component of the, the mind or, or brain gut health and link that we talked about earlier. So the reason I'm saying all of this, when you're doing this deep breathing, particularly what they call pranayama breathing, where you're, you're kind of breathing like Darth Vader, you yes, hear yourself yeah. breathing, you're constricting your throat, is actually stimulating the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve in turn releases a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is what calms 
the sympathetic nervous system down. So there's very much a scientific explanation behind why the yoga breathing is so effective in reducing stress and calming you down. So while all this is happening, it starts to get your prefrontal cortex working again. You're now thinking clearly and logically. Then you can kind of talk yourself out of the stress system while the acetylcholine is still working its magic in your body. So it, it all comes together with that deep breath work. Mm -hmm. One last thing, uh, and it's something you were talking about. You said that it can kick in when we speak publicly and it just seems like a universal thing that happens to so many people. My question is why, what is it about public speaking that is such a barrier to people, such a challenge when in life they're doing a lot of other really challenging things and they don't freeze up or get the deer in the headlights thing going on yes, or get the yes. stomach churning. What is, why public speaking? What is it? It's so fascinating to me. There's research where people will be interviewed and say, what scares you more than anything? Now, you would think death, right? I mean, you think <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get killed. That scares me. There are actually, the majority of people have answered some of these questions. Right? Public speaking is more fearful than death. I, yep. That is kind of baffling to me as a psychologist. But a lot of it gets back to the evolutionary brain. Our brain, again, has still not evolved with society and technology. So your brain is hardwired to protect you. And if you think about it hundreds of thousands of years ago, we were in very small clans, very small tribes. If you were rejected from that clan or abandoned from that clan, you would not survive as a human being. You had to have the strength of that clan to survive. So some of this when you're public speaking, there's this deep fear that you're going to embarrass yourself, that you're going to be rejected, that people are not going to accept what you're saying, they're going to disagree with it. Now, we obviously know in today's times that we can rationalize that, we can think about it, we can say, well, they have a different opinion, I have a different perspective, but your brain still does not know that. So while you're stressed because of this presentation, you've got all those different uh, systems kicking in that we talked about, your brain is thinking, oh my gosh, I, I might fail my clan and get kicked out of it, produces even more stress. So it's this terrible underlying evolutionary fear that we have of it. And the best way to overcome it is, is really just basic, what we call prolonged exposure therapy. The more you do, the better you get at it. I, I will share this with you. I used to be petrified of public speaking. When I was in graduate school, if any of my classmates hear this, they will remember that I would be nervous. My voice would quiver. My hands would shake. I'd be sweating. In fact, one day I actually turned the temperature of the room cooler in our, our classroom and the thermostat broke and it ended up being like 50 degrees in the room while I was giving my speech. Um, but by doing it more and more, what you do is you reset your stress level. So if my normal stress level is right here, kind of like a level one. And then when some stressor comes along, I go up to an eight. What you can do is set that stress normal level down to a zero or, or maybe even a negative number, but much lower. So when you have a stressor, it only goes up to a three or a four. So just by practicing public speaking, doing it more and more, using that breath work, using some of the other techniques that we have, you can actually combat that stress reactive process that's evolutionary in its mechanism and drive and improve it a lot. And that's true of any stressor you encounter, including burnout. Mm -hmm. You mentioned burnout. So we're going to get to that. That's where we're going for much of the rest of our conversation here. So I did want to start with something. I was in a meeting earlier today. We were talking about staffing, uh -huh. talking about hiring people at medical practices. You're well aware of this. You've been in that in that chair before in your, in your career. 
we mentioned the topic that had come up from some medical practices we had talked to. They said that in some of those frontline, uh, front desk uh, type positions, that they're losing out in the hiring to grocery stores right now. They're losing out to Starbucks. And there was one other factor that because of unemployment right now and the way that's being helped somewhat uh, in this pandemic era, uh, the unemployment side of it, that people are setting up interviews. Uh, they're setting up and so for the HR person or the person at the medical practice, this is time and effort for them to do the research, to be waiting. And the person, at least this is what one practice administrator said, they have no intention of actually coming in for the interview. Um, they are not, uh, but they are able to then check that box and get the unemployment. Um, and there's a lot of frustration, stress, and because we're not able to hire here at the practices, that's putting even more burden on the people who are there, causing even more burnout. So it's just this cycle here going on. Yeah. Talk about that for a minute. What do you, what do you see going on there in this whole hiring, staffing, and that side of burnout and what's such a challenge? You may have had this yourself when you were running practices as well. Every day, I still, in fact, yesterday, I'd say 50% of my day was spent dealing with trying to hire various positions. Uh, in my opinion, it's a nationwide crisis. Uh, we cannot get enough healthcare workers uh, in any specialty. And, and that's not just the clinically. We, we, I think the clinical folks get so much attention with burnout and stress, as they should. But we do neglect a lot of the non-clinical folks, the practice administrators, the managers, the business office folks, the business development folks. I think healthcare has become such a competitive industry, and it's even interesting in and of itself that we're referring to as an industry now. We didn't used to when I started my career, but, but we clearly are now. And I think the challenges and the pressures for every single person have become so acute, and that does, of course, add more and more stress. A lot of this carries over our home life, too. And you know, one of the messages I have at the seminar in October is burnout happens at work, but stress doesn't care. It doesn't care if it's home or work or anywhere else. Stress is stress. So if you're burned out at work, you've got to get to the underlying root causes of what's causing that stress in all aspects of your life and deal with that, not just the burnout issues. But now kind of going back to the practice setting, um, I think there's a lot of factors at play here. One, uh, there are now other industries, like you mentioned, that are not, uh, you know, at least to me, not as rewarding from a personal, you know, human standpoint, but they're paying better. They have better benefits. They have better working conditions. We're asking our healthcare workers, particularly with COVID, to put their lives at risk, even in a physician practice, not just the hospital setting, but you know, you've got people with COVID actively coming in, interacting with you. Uh, it's a very stressful environment. The patients are stressed. The doctors are stressed. I mean, our physicians now, our primary care doctors, my gosh, they're seeing 40, 50 patients a day. You know, how can they do that and not be stressed and burned out? The practice leaders, the CEOs, we're asking so much of those people now. I don't know how, I mean, you almost have to be a, a god to, to do these jobs. It's just become so difficult to perform financially, keep your employees happy, your doctors happy, deal with the payers, deal with COVID, deal with government regulations, all these different entities and stakeholders that are involved in, in just a simple physician practice office. And I think the stress levels are just getting higher and higher. There's a shortage of healthcare workers. In fact, here in Arizona, where I live, there is now a two-year wait just to start nursing school. Wow. And yet we have heard in the state of Arizona, we need 45% more nurses than we have now. So part of it, 
it's just supply and demand. They're just not there. And, and, you know, your frontline workers, they're really the heart and soul of your physician practice. That front desk person is the most important person for your customer service. And now they're going to Starbucks because they can have better wages. They can have their college degree paid for. They can have better benefits. So it, it's, you know, I don't have all the answers to that. I don't know that anybody does. It's a multifaceted problem. Obviously, dealing with burnout and stress is a key factor of it. But there's also the working conditions that we provide, the level of respect. Uh, I mean, how many times as practice administrators have we seen physicians uh, treat our frontline employees inappropriately and be rude to them and not, you know, pay attention to them? That really impacts them a lot. Again, going back to that evolutionary psychological concept, mm -hmm. they don't feel part of the tribe. They don't feel part of the clan. And now they've got the Starbucks clan really embracing them and pulling them into their clan and their tribe where they feel at home. So, so much of it is just getting back to that evolutionary psychological perspective and treating people the way we want to be treated. And again, it's not a great answer to your question because I think we could spend multiple podcasts right. talking about this with a lot of different experts and different disciples. Um, but it is a very complicated problem. It's not going away. It's going to get worse. And, you know, for those practice administrators, hospital administrators in rural settings, I don't know how you do it. I, at this point in time, I don't know how you attract the workforce because everybody's leaving those communities. There's yeah. no jobs. And, you know, you're even at a bigger hindrance there, but it's impacting all of us in every region, small practices, large practices. And I think if there's any solace, we're all not alone. We're all experiencing this. So I think the more we can brainstorm and best practice with each other and really bring our clan as medical practice professionals together, uh, that's probably the best solution to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've, you've touched on a lot of points. So the one about rural uh, settings, that really got me. I grew mm -hmm. up in uh, Mississippi and I've seen myself, I'm in Colorado now, and so many other people that I grew up with, just sort of an, a mass exodus of really bright people there. I'm not including myself among those, but, uh, <laughs> but, but a lot of educated people who could really help uh, the workforce moving to surrounding areas, bigger urban areas as well. So that is a real problem. Um, I did want to move on to, you mentioned also that you'll be speaking at MGMA's Leaders Conference. It's going to be October in San Diego. Um, Give us an idea. What can somebody learn uh, from your session? What is, if we had, if you had one big takeaway, you wanted someone to to get out of that. What would that be? Uh, it's very simple. Life is short. Please be happy. Uh, if you are burned out, there are ways that, that that I can help you. Other people can help you to to deal with it, to identify it, figure out what's going on, and put a plan in place to address it. And, and, you know, honestly, it could be there's some people that have gone into this profession. It's not what they thought. They're unhappy. They've never enjoyed it. You know, look at another profession. Don't, don't stay in a field you don't enjoy. You know, you do need to look at those factors. But I think the vast majority of people that are going to be at this session, they love their profession. They went into it for the right reasons. They, you know, they want to make a good, you know, financial living, of course, but they want to make a difference in the world and they want to help patients and, and help the healthcare setting and in our nation and their communities. And so, for those people, we all get burned out. You're not alone. I've been burned out before, Daniel. I'm sure you have in your profession. Yep. It's just natural. Burnout happens. But the key is not to let it become chronic burnout that starts to affect your performance and your overall life. And, and there are a lot of things that we can do to help people to address that burnout and kind of get back on track. So the main message, life is short. 
please be happy. If you're burned out, get some help. Have somebody work through it with you. It doesn't have to be a doctor's psychology. It can be a colleague, a classmate, your spouse. You, you know, there's a lot of different resources out there. Don't hold it in. Uh, I think a lot of leaders, and myself included, we, we have this perception that as a leader, we have to have the answers. We walk into a meeting and whatever the problem is, we have to know what to do and we have to solve it. We have to fix it. We have to be strong. We can never show weakness. We can never show doubt. Well, of course, none of that is true. I, I, Daniel, I've walked into many meetings as a CEO thinking, oh my God, I don't know what to do right now, but I'm, I'm gonna look strong and I'm gonna act like I know what I'm doing, but I have no idea what to do. We've all been there. We, we don't have all the answers. That's why we have a team. That's why we have the MGMA and all the resources you guys provide. We have a network, we have a support structure. But when we put that pressure on ourselves that we have to have the answers, we can't be weak, we have to be strong, uh, burnout is very hard to accept. I have worked with so many executives that just won't admit they're burned out. And yet I go mm -hmm. through all the things that are experiencing all the symptoms and I, I check every box and say, you know, it looks pretty clear to me that you're burned out. You've got a lot of stress and they still won't admit it. So the first thing, just, just admit that burnout. It, there's no shame to it. It actually is a sign of strength to show that you admit that you've got a burnout, that you've got some stress and you want to deal with it. That to me is strength. Denying it, suppressing it never works in any aspect of psychology. So again, uh, life is short. Please be happy. Let's deal with this burnout. Let's get on the table and let's get you moving on with your life. That, that is my main takeaway for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you touched on some different topics about not wanting to show weakness. I do think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, but one of the things that I've observed and heard from many practice leaders as I've interviewed them over the last year and a half is that there's been a, more of an acceptance of vulnerability during this really difficult time, a time that I don't know that any of us were living in the last pandemic. There might be a few um, elderly people in there, over a hundred who were around for the 1918 pandemic. But for this one, it's challenged us in ways that we've really not been challenged before. And so people have been able to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm having a tough time. What, what, what can you do to help me? Or reaching out to colleagues, reaching out to family members. Um, have you seen that as well from your professional standpoint about that vulnerability of being able to go, yeah, I'm a tough guy, but yeah, I'm, I, I'm hurting here and I need some help. So what have you yeah. seen professionally? You know, it's interesting. I, I, would, I guess, yes and no. Okay. Um, I'm still saying, and I guess it's okay to say this, part of it I've seen a generational issue. Okay? okay, so kind of the older generation still has a bit of a stigma towards mental health, towards psychology. Um, and, and I found that that generation is struggling the most because they're not willing to reach out for help. There's still kind of a conception, and, and my, my, I don't mind sharing this. My father was a hospital CEO for 40 years, and he comes with the mindset that stress is good, that it, I thrive on stress and I need stress. Uh, and there's actually some truth that a little bit of stress can be good, but when it's chronic is when it becomes uh, maladaptive. But there's still a, a group of, of, of people that, that think stress is necessary. It's almost like a badge of honor. You know, I work 14 hour days. Well, I work 15 hour days. Well, right. I work seven days a week. Well, I, you know, I never take a vacation. And, and it's like this badge of honor yeah. that we're stressed and we're working so hard, but you got to step back and say, you know, working hard is one thing. Working effectively is a different thing. The research in psychology is so clear that a human being is productive for about four to six hours a day. Now, I'm not saying that everybody out there can say, well, you know, Dr. Comer said I can only work four to six hours a day. I'm gonna tell my boss that. That's not what I'm saying. We, we have to put in longer hours. But what I am saying is 
target the time of day that you're most productive. Most of it's about nine to one in the day is when you're most productive. That's when you should have your most challenging meetings. That's when you should have your most challenging discussions, your strategic discussions. Leave the afternoon hours for the routine things, responding to emails, make some phone calls. So there are things like that uh, that are very important. So again, I've seen a no side from people that uh, just still kind of have a stigma to us, you know, stress is a badge of honor. Then on the flip side, I've seen um, a definite trend and in, in improvement, I guess would be the right word, towards seeking out help. And, and you don't have to go dump your problems to a psychologist. You don't have to come tell me about your childhood and your mother unless you want to, but you need to reach out. You need to open up. I know this seems crazy. Equine therapy is a really good example. I, I'm a horse owner. I will tell you right now, talking to my horse is as good as any psychologist in the world. She listens to me. She puts her nose against my chest. She holds me. She comforts me. She doesn't reject me. Um, you know, but get those emotions out. Get this stuff out. Talk to somebody. I think it's really good with a colleague because we all, you know, until you've been, if you're a CEO of a big, huge medical practice, unless somebody has done that job, it's really hard for them to truly understand. You kind of have to walk in someone else's shoes. Uh, very similar with military. A lot of veterans come back with PTSD and I do a lot of work with them. It's very hard for somebody who has not experienced PTSD to understand what a veteran has gone through in combat. It's the same for a lot of different specialties. So this is a very long-winded answer to your question. I find a yes and a no. There are a lot of people that are willing to open up to friends, to colleagues, to, to me, to psychologists. And then there's this other group that are a little bit more resistant, a little bit more stubborn. And, but I do even see with them that they're starting to embrace this a little bit more. Maybe some people you never thought would take yoga before are taking a yoga class, trying to get that stress, that stored emotion out of their body. So there's a lot of different ways that I am seeing people embrace it more, but, but there's still a, a group that's kind of holding out a little bit resistant, kind of a, a stubborn mindset, if you will. For sure. It's so cool that you talked about equine therapy here in Colorado. Uh, we have a center here for that, and I had a great, the great fortune of spending several days at the center and seeing, um, seeing a real, you know, sort of beautiful thing take place. Some kids who were autistic or yeah. had some other challenges, had some other things going in their lives, being able to uh, be there with the horses and interacting with them and seeing the smiles on their faces and seeing yes. them kind of come out of a, a shell, so to speak. Some people, yes. you know, who had some PTSD and it, it is, it's really amazing to see that take place though. So it is fascinating to hear you say that it, it's really interesting when I worked uh, when I was trying to decide what I want to do for my dissertation, for my doctorate, I had actually considered doing an equine therapy because I was so fascinated with it. So I, I did a lot of research on it. I, I did my dissertation in another, another area, but um, I was really interested to see how equine therapy could help people reduce their stress and, and reduce you know, psychological diseases and disorders. And the research is overwhelming. It is absolutely as effective as going to a therapist. It, it's really kind of putting me out of work, I guess, but uh, that's not a bad thing, but um, it really is a, a great, great beneficial thing for anybody. So I just kind of use that as one example. I mean, there's yoga, there's martial arts, there's all kinds of different things that are not therapy per se, but yet you even look at yoga. Yoga teaches you interoception, to look inside your body, to understand how you're feeling. You may have heard that book by Dr. Vanderkolk, Your Body Keeps the Score. Well, again, it's kind of, we started talking about this a little bit, but your body does store these emotions and these, these tensions inside you. It gets back to that psychoneuroimmunology concept. There's also a concept called sensory motor amnesia. And what that is, 
your motor neurons will fire and they will direct certain muscles to, to act in a certain way. And over time, it becomes a habituated pattern. It's repetitive. So your mind doesn't have to think about it. It just makes your muscles do a certain thing. So a lot of times with stress, you, you store it in certain areas. So, you know, me, I have really tight traps. My wife has really tight uh, kind of latissimus yeah. muscles. A lot of women will store emotions, tensions in their hips. That's this SMA, this habituated pattern that you don't think about. It now happens unconsciously. So you're storing, you have an emotional stressor, emotional response. Your body puts it into this certain area in your muscles. And then you go to yoga class and you release those areas. And you're also concentrating on the breath, which we talked about, the acetylcholine. Mm -hmm. Your logical reasoning centers are working. You're very calm. And you release that tension. You release that emotion. The reason I'm saying all this there are a lot of ways like equine therapy and yoga that you can release stored emotions, stored stress, stored burnout without ever going to a psychotherapist and talking about your childhood. You don't oftentimes have to do that. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. So um, yeah, it, it all ties together. Yeah, you're touching on some things that we've, we've dealt with here at MGMA. We've, we've developed something called Mindful Mondays where since the pandemic, where we get together for 15 minutes Monday mornings and do a, a brief meditation and just check in. We actually uh, had identified an article from Psychology Today that did exactly what you were just talking about. It identified where some people hold stress in their shoulders, like you said, the traps. Some people up here in the temples, some people, yes. mine is usually in the lower back. And then one person just said, I hold it everywhere, you know? So, <laughs> it's the whole thing. It's a, everything in stress. So, we, so it's really fascinating. But one of the things that we have talked about is it's what is your yoga and using yoga in a very generic sense where some people might go, oh, I don't want to do yoga. That's, uh, that's weird. That's not my thing. Yeah, and yeah, so it might yeah. be like you're saying, it might be equine therapy. It might be hiking. It might be yes, um, yes. whatever your, you know, to borrow the phrase from Simon Sinek, finding your why, you know, or your, in this case, your what, what is it that will help me get out of this tense space that I'm living in? Talk about that. How do you figure out that? I mean, it might, become very natural to some people. They know that when they go walk their dogs for an hour every day, they return from that and they are a transformed person or from yes. their yoga class or whatever it is. Yes. But if you're, if you're so have been caught in that groove of stress for so long and burnout for so long, what are some ways they can begin to work through to figure out what their, what might be the thing that can pull them out of it? And in that, I will tell you, that is the million dollar question. It's kind of funny, psychologists, we're very good at saying, here's what's wrong with you, but it's a little bit more difficult to fix it because these are deep rooted issues. A lot of them are evolutionary in nature. So I think the key and what I always tell people is what is your hobby? What, what, do, you, what do you enjoy doing outside of work? Mm -hmm. Is it something as simple as sitting with your cup of coffee in the morning, watching the sunrise? Is it going for a walk with the dog? Is it taking a hike? I think a lot of times people think that you've got to do a, a, this grueling, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger workout where you're in the gym for three hours and then you're, or maybe you have to run a marathon or you clean up your diet and you have to starve yourself. It, it's none of that. And, and that, in fact, all of those things actually create more stress in your body. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger workouts are, are about creating stress in your body. So that actually can be counterproductive for people. What I always tell people is just find that one activity you enjoy five minutes a day to start. You, you don't have to do it for hours. If it's just sitting with that cup of coffee, if it's 
holding your, your partner's hand, if it's going for a walk, if it's whatever, playing tennis, doing yoga, riding a horse, uh, there are millions of different things. It could be knitting, crocheting, it could be reading a good book, it, it could be meditating, it could be you know swimming, it, all these different things. There's no right or wrong answer. The only, well, I guess there is, the right answer is find something that you enjoy. I can't really tell people what that is. They have figured out. I would say virtually every human being has something that they really enjoy or that they want to learn. Maybe it's as simple as learning a new language. Learning a new language is amazing. It creates, everybody thinks your brain is just set at birth and it never changes. That is not true. In fact, when you go through chronic stress reactive processes, your hippocampus is a very important area in your brain. It stores your emotional memories. It actually atrophies, it gets smaller with chronic stress. There's been a lot of research done on combat veterans and also people, for example, with schizophrenia. Their hippocampuses are much smaller. Here's the beauty though through reducing the stress, relaxing, finding more calmness, you can stop the atrophy and actually increase the hippocampal volume. You can also increase your neuroplasticity, meaning that you're forming new neural connections, new neural networks. So when you learn a new language, you're, doing, you're actually changing the physical structure of your brain. You're adding new neural pathways, neural networks, which just expands your overall mental well-being. So again, I'm kind of using that as an example. It doesn't have to be you know, a, a gut-wrenching marathon. It can be a walk with a dog. It can be learning a language. It can be taking up a musical instrument. It can be reading a new book that you wanted to. I mean, maybe you wanted to, to gosh, I don't know, Daniel, learn scuba diving. I, I mean, just think outside of the box. What is something your whole life you've always wanted to try? And what has limited you from trying it? Let's give it a shot now. You don't have to spend 10 hours a day doing it. You can spend 15 minutes every night studying your scuba diving course, then do a weekend class. I mean, there's a lot of ways around it. I think sometimes people say, I'm too busy. I, I'm working too hard. I can't. So my, my next you know, statement is, well, you do control your calendar to a degree. I get it as an executive. There's meetings you can't, you have board meetings, you have doctors who want to see you. I get all that. But you can set aside 15, 20, 30 minutes a day for self-care to take care of yourself. So there's just a lot of different things people can look at. I really challenge them to find something that either they really enjoy doing, that they want to do more, or that they've never done that they want to try. Mm -hmm. I have one last question for you before we sign off. So I had the great fortune of uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, getting to go to Hawaii with the family. And we went to Kauai and it's the Garden Island. It's just so beautiful and peaceful. But I was one of those people that when I went on a vacation, yes, I took the family and the suitcases, but I took the computer and the work and the stress oh, with me as well. Daniel. I know. And so a few years ago, I made a shift there and quit doing that. And in this one, I even went one step further. And before I got on the plane, I opened up, you know, my smartphone and I didn't bring a computer, so all I had was my smartphone, and I turned off all the notifications, all of the, any pings that might happen, any of that stuff, whether it's work-related or uh, even personal-related. The only thing I left open was the text message if my wife or daughter and I got separated so we could <laughs> reach right, each other, right, you know. Right. And the... The benefit of that was was very noticeable. It was measurable. I, I was at such peace, such calmness uh, throughout the trip. Talk about that, about being able to, if we can, in this world, this techno technological world, being able to disconnect from 
the devices that give us a lot of joy, but can also uh, tie us up and, you know, keep us always on. Um, talk about yes. that as one final thought uh, here. God, yeah, we got all these topics, like all these questions are separate podcasts in and of themselves. Uh, and and I, I love talking about this stuff. So, uh, okay. When you look at the psychological research on social media, it is very, very bad. In fact, I am very hard pressed to find any, I shouldn't say any, but, but uh, many articles that are peer reviewed that show benefit to social media. Now, there are some where, for example, if you have a very rare disease and you wanna connect with a network of people throughout the nation or world that have that disease, absolutely, that's a wonderful thing. But when you look at social connectivity, when you look at the stress that comes from using the social media, the social applications, the bullying, the constant comparison that we have, trying to show our neighbor that we're happier than them and our vacation is better than theirs and my car is nicer than yours. It is so psychologically devastating. There have been some fascinating studies that show that when you turn off social media, even for two to four hours, your psychological measures of health go up dramatically. So as a psychologist, it is imperative that we turn that stuff off as much as we can. I really recommend to people every night, a couple hours before you go to bed, turn it off. One, the blue light from all the screens disrupts your melatonin, which is a very powerful chemical to help you go to sleep. It's one of the reasons we don't sleep well anymore because we're watching blue screens right until we go to bed. It also gets your neurotransmitters aroused. So you go to bed in a hyper aroused state, you can't fall asleep. And then you wake up thinking about this stuff. So, you know, without a doubt, a couple hours before you go to bed. But what you did is so important. We've got to get away from that stuff. You have to give your mind a break. Let your mind just wander, let it daydream, let it do whatever you want, you know, enjoy that beach without the multitasking. Multitasking is one of the biggest fallacies of psychology. It is impossible to multitask. And so when people are sitting at their desk working on a project and they get a text message, what is happening in your brain is this, while you're working on that project, you're engaging all aspects of your memory, your working memory, short-term memory, and long-term memory. These are very complicated neural pathways and neural clusters in your brain. Now, you're working away, you're making great strides on this project, and then you get that text message. You look over it, you pick up that phone, and now your entire memory processing shifts from that project to this text message. You've just lost everything that you had built up in your mind to the project, and now you're starting all over with this text message. You look at it, now I don't want to do this, you set it down. Well, although it took you about five seconds to do that, now you have to completely rewire your brain to get back to your project. Then somebody walks into your office, it happens again, then you get a phone call, then you get the email. So in terms of just decompressing from all of that, if that vacation that you mentioned, Turning all that stuff off gave you a chance to not be constantly distracted, multitasking. It gave your brain a chance to relax and think about some things it actually wants to think about. So there's a whole slew of, of, of factors in this, but I, I believe it is absolutely critical as human beings. Again, our brains are not wired for this. We're wired for millions of years ago, and we don't deal well with all this. That's one of the reasons we have so much stress. The technology, yes, lots of benefits. I get it. But from a psychologist standpoint, there are very few benefits to this. It's actually created a lot more stress and a lot more of competitive nature in us and, and really uh, has pulled our psychological well-being down a few notches. So unplugging, getting away from it is so important to us. All right. Well, Jeff, this is I, I love talking with you about this, learning from you. And I can't wait to meet you in person in San Diego. Likewise. And, yeah, learning even more about how to combat burnout. So thanks so much for joining us today. And we'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope this has been helpful. So thank you.
Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Jeff Comer. Also, thanks to All Scripts and to MGMA Leaders Conference for sponsoring this week's show. You can accelerate your path to medical practice leadership by joining us in San Diego, October 24th through the 27th at the Medical Practice Excellence Leaders Conference. Or join us for our digital experience, November 16th through the 18th. Visit mgma.com slash MPE21 and register today. Also, with Allscripts Revenue Cycle Management Services, you get a robust end-to-end revenue cycle solution that improves reimbursement processes and offers access to advanced analytics and reporting. Allscripts can help you reduce the cost of care while building a healthier community. Learn more at allscripts.com. And if you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.